a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Ah, the interesting times that we live in. There's a lot of crazy stuff happening right now. There's a lot of deception. There's a greater need than ever for people like you and I to think clearly and independently. Lest we uh, find ourselves deceived, misled, enslaved, etc. So I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to encourage you to think clearly and think independently. I'm helped by great sponsors like uh, garagedoorpros.com. Actually, it's garagedoorproservices.com. Also, lifesavingfood.com. MonticelloCollege.org. HSLAMO.com. And I do appreciate uh, those individual listeners, and there are there's more than a few of you who, uh, who are monthly supporters of this program. Thank you so much. First of all, for for being a part of my audience and, and for participating and sending me articles and, and communicating with me. But I really, I appreciate your financial support as well. And, uh, and I, I treat that as a very sacred trust. And this is, this is about getting the truth out there, encouraging people to think, encouraging people to stand up and be free men and women. What a time. I, I'm noticing a trend, by the way, and this is uh, <clears throat> something I've seen a lot on Twitter here lately. It's like Twitter's really trying to steer towards, oh, well, uh, uh, let's see, uh, cyber security experts and uh, other experts say that uh, there is no widespread evidence of voter fraud in the 2020 election. And I'm seeing this over and over again. It's like Twitter is is really trying to push the idea that, hey, Everything was cool with the 2020 election. There's really no reason for anybody to question. But the thing that's missing from these headlines are just a couple of simple words that would make it all make a whole lot more sense. And that would be things like headlines that would say, according to experts and cybersecurity experts, uh, according to voting and cybersecurity experts, there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election according to the regime. Because really, that's what you're getting here. You are getting the regime's viewpoint. So, you know, the regime is just assuring us, hey, everything's cool, we're all legit in here, and there's no reason to doubt us. And it's one of those cases where uh, methinks he doth protest too much. So I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm not utterly convinced, but there is a really strong push here, and I just have to wonder, how does that all fit in with all the other stuff? Well, let's dive in. And see where our journey takes us today. I love Paul Rosenberg. I love his take on things. And this is a good one. He, he always has something very uh, thought-provoking to share. But he asks the question, if you had to choose between social media and COVID, which would you choose? Now, that seems like it'd be a no-brainer, right? Well, I'm already on social media all the time. So, you know, maybe that's what I would choose. Well, he says, if you had to pick between a social media addiction and COVID... It would be better to pick COVID because COVID only debilitates you for a few days and then goes away. Social media, on the other hand, debilitates you for years, perhaps many years. In fact, he says it's designed to be addictive and it's improved consistently. Also, he says the fatalities of COVID are probably fewer. COVID kills a fraction of 1% of the people it infects. 
social media damages orders of magnitude more people and over a far longer time span. He says many of social media's victims will attempt suicide, not to mention living with a crippling debilitation and all that flows downhill from it. So to make the point, he says, here are the results of two recent studies. Now, he says, I'm not going to include links because that creates spam issues. But this first one comes from someplace called We Are Social, which he says he found through something called Influencer Marketing Hub. Now, these are 2022 numbers, and they show the amount of time the average Internet user spent. I hope you're sitting down because some of these are pretty shocking. Two hours and 27 minutes using social media each day. Three hours, 21 minutes watching all types of television. Two hours, five minutes reading press media. One hour, 35 minutes listening to music streaming. One hour, one minute listening to broadcast radio. 57 minutes listening to podcasts. One hour, 13 minutes playing video games on a games console. Now, that comes out to 12 hours, 39 minutes. And Paul Rosenberg says, I don't know how much overlap there is in the numbers, whether these are the people who no longer want jobs or whether the survey's a bit off, though he says this does match others that he's run into fairly well. But he says the survey also found some very troubling mental health consequences. For instance, in 2020, Generation Z became 15% more likely to say that social media gives them anxiety. Also, the rate of individuals reporting major depression in the previous 12 months increased 52% in adolescents between 2005 to 2017. 27% of children who spend three or more hours daily on social media exhibit poor mental health. The majority of teenagers with low social well-being feel excluded when using social media. And people who visit social media sites at least 58 times per week are three times more likely to feel socially isolated and depressed. I mean, these are some pretty interesting statistics. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, someplace called Oberlo produced data on social media usage statistics by country for the year 2021. So this is just kind of a little snapshot, the highest and lowest users of social media. Philippines, 248 minutes per day. Brazil, 226. Nigeria, 222. We know why all the scams are coming out of Nigeria, right? Uh, Colombia, 221. South Africa, 217. Argentina, 205. Mexico, 205. Indonesia, 200. Ghana, 200. Saudi Arabia, 196. These are the top users. You notice the U.S. isn't even in there? Interesting. As far as the lowest users of social media, Switzerland, 87 minutes a day on average. Austria, 85, Netherlands, 85, South Korea, 73. Look at this. Japan, 50 minutes per day. We have a Japanese student staying with us right now, and she is she is the sweetest thing. And I know she's been given very strict instructions. You are not to get on your cell phone and, you know, just get lost in your screen. And she has been very good about this for the last three weeks. Like to the point where I'm thinking, man, she has like superhuman powers to stay off social media but it looks like that uh, that actually plays out here (laughs) so paul rosenberg shares these statistics saying look what to do about this he says i'm going to leave that to you he goes i think this is horrifying data evincing a very very bad problem but the purpose of this post is just to make you aware of the scope and to me this is this is the biggest reason to give that second thought to social media even though it's social media that I use to often help try to get the message out, to try to expand my reach. 
it is an addiction. And it feeds the, the reward center in our brains. Once it was pointed out to me, that's when I started to notice. When I would go and revisit uh, Twitter, I'd revisit Facebook or, you know, somewhere on social media, I'd come back and I'd revisit and I'd notice, oh, somebody liked this or somebody shared this or somebody commented. And especially if it was something of a supportive nature, oh man, you do, you get that little dopamine release. Ah, there it is. Wow. And it's extremely addictive. So I'm not trying to scare you and I'm not trying to say, you know, you need to be, you need to be a Luddite, you know, shun all electronic devices. But when you hear about how many hours and how many minutes each day, and by the way, the two hours and 27 minutes on social media each day, I, uh, Facebook sends me some very thoughtful statistics every week. Usually it's Sunday morning, just about the time I'm sitting down in church. I get a little notification on my phone. I want to say, let's see, your statistics are. And let's just say um, I'm spending a whole lot more time. <laughs> My screen time is is a lot higher than the average there. Now, I wish I could say it's because I'm such an effective voice of truth that I really have to do this. But I think a lot of it is no, because it's convenient and it is an addiction. And uh, I'm right in the middle of it. So got some decision making to do here. And, and now now that you know what you know, maybe you have some decision making to, to do as well. Just a quick uh, mention here of one of my sponsors, lifesavingfood.com. I know you're probably pretty squared away when it comes to food storage and so forth. There is no story that I'm watching with more interest than the potential food shortage problems and particularly the war on farmers. In fact, uh, when we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the green war on Dutch farmers. All I'm saying is you don't need to go panic by, but I think you would be extremely wise to have extra stores of food, not just for yourself and your family, but maybe even to help neighbors or uh, close acquaintances, people that you know and trust, should there come a time of uh, scarcity. I'm not wishing for it. I'm not telling you, you know, here it comes, here it comes. I'm just saying the conditions are growing more and more favorable for these kinds of shortages. And it would be a real shame to be caught less than prepared. Lifesavingfood.com can help you in that regard. I've got a link to their website right there on my uh, show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Just look under sponsors. It'll take you right there. All right, we'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I'd like to briefly encourage you to get online and go to garagedoorproservices.com. This is assuming that you or someone you know is in need of a garage door, be it for commercial use, be it for residential use. Garage Door Pros are a local company to St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Colorado City. That's southwest corner of Utah and uh, northern Arizona. Yep, they are there to take care of you with installation, service, and repair on garage doors. Uh, By the way, their garage doors are made in America. They offer a very quick response, much faster lead time than other companies can give you, and positively outrageous good customer service. You should actually go online, look at their, look at the testimonials of their customers. 
They really know how to take care of people. GarageDoorProServices.com. So I'm an advocate of not getting too caught up in national and world news that really has nothing to do with us whatsoever. But having said that, this green war on Dutch farmers, I think, is a story that's worth following. And, and I hope I'm wrong on this, but I have a sense that very soon we are all going to understand the importance of farmers and we're all going to understand the process by which food gets from farm to our table much, much more deeply than we do right now. And it's probably going to come as a result of uh, suddenly food is not that easy to come by. I'm sorry if that sounds scary, but it just seems clear that right now there is a very concerted effort to gain control of the means of producing food. And historically, when you really want to control a population, that's how you do it. You control their food. Oh, you're not going to cooperate? Well, then I'll just let you starve for a bit and see how you feel about that. James Bascom, writing for AmericanThinker.com, says the green war on Dutch farmers should concern everybody. And here's his thinking. He says, over the past few months, thousands of Dutch farmers have blocked highways and staged protests. Hundreds have been arrested. One was even shot at by a police officer. Dutch farmers have been protesting in the streets on and off since 2019. And he asks, why are the farmers so outraged? They're fighting for nothing less than the survival of modern agriculture as such. In the name of sustainability and fighting pollution, green activists are trying to do in or do to agriculture what they have done to the power grid and also to the oil and gas industry. In the name of highly questionable environmental goals, green activists want to destroy the ability of farms to produce high-quality, abundant, clean, and inexpensive food. Now, just to put this in perspective, although the Netherlands has a population of 17 million and is only slightly larger than the U.S. state of Maryland, that is the second-largest agricultural exporter in the world after the United States. Do you realize that? Dutch farms produce enormous quantities of beef, pork, dairy products, and many other agricultural goods that are sold all over Europe and the world. The Dutch can produce so much food in such a small country thanks to the application of technology to farming methods. Dutch farms are perhaps the most advanced in the world. Thanks to the efficient technology, Dutch food is not only plentiful, but it's also inexpensive, efficient, and clean without sacrificing quality. Now, green activists are saying, well, this agriculture produces too much pollution and therefore must be drastically reduced. So at the behest of the European Union and green groups, the Dutch government is imposing a plan to reduce nitrogen oxide and ammonia pollution by 50% by the year 2030. If carried out, this draconian plan would force Dutch farmers to reduce their herds by one-third and reduce their use of fertilizer. Now, what that means is many farms would be forced to close and the cost of food would undoubtedly rise. You understand why? These farmers are being told you must produce less, that uh, lower production is going to create scarcity. Scarcity is going to create higher prices, more competition for the same limited amount of food. It's a vicious cycle. It's crazy. The, The radical green movement has been waging war on modern agriculture for years. They claim that farming practices are unsustainable, so it wants to eliminate the use of fertilizers, pesticides, and technology, which would eliminate the massive gains in productivity and efficiency achieved over the past century. And if anybody doubts, you know, where these kind of green goals lead, I'd like to direct your attention to Sri Lanka. Now, that country's economy collapsed 
resulting in food shortages and mass unemployment. A leading cause, though not the only one, of this meltdown was the radical green policies of former President Gotabaya Rajapaska. In April 2021, he banned the importation of chemical fertilizers used by 90% of the country's farms and forced farmers to revert to what are called organic methods. And the effects were swift. Here's what happened in Sri Lanka. One-third of their farms went dormant. 85% of farmers suffered crop losses. Rice production fell 20%, while its price went up 50%. Sri Lanka was forced to import rice from a market in which it had previously been self-sufficient. Tea production, a cash crop for Sri Lanka, fell 18%. Inflation skyrocketed, food became scarce, and many small farmers were ruined. Now, with that evidence right there in their faces... Sri Lanka's meltdown still didn't stop green activists from pushing similar measures in the West. And they're demanding that Dutch farmers drastically reduce nitrogen oxide and ammonia pollution or shut down. Now, both nitrogen oxide and ammonia runoff are unavoidable side effects of farming. First from fertilizers, the second from animal manure. With technology, however, both can be significantly reduced. Since the 1960s, the Dutch have doubled their yields using the same amount of fertilizer. Since 1900, the Dutch have also managed to increase production while reducing nitrogen oxide and ammonia pollution by a staggering 70%. I mean, they're ahead of the curve on this. Now, in some parts of the world, this pollution is a very serious problem. It's particularly bad in poor, underdeveloped countries like China and India. Scientists use a metric called nitrogen use efficiency, or NUE, to measure how much crop fertilizer washes away into waterways. In Europe and North America, NUE has increased to nearly 70%. In China, it has fallen from 65 to 20%. Thanks to technology, though, farmers can produce more food on less land with less fertilizer, water, fuel, and pesticide than ever before. Dutch farms are among the cleanest and most efficient in the world. Far from a target of scorn, Dutch agriculture should be a model for the rest of the world. Food exports also bring in $100 billion in revenue for the Netherlands annually, a major contributor to the country's prosperity. So if green activists really cared about the environment, and if they really cared about human flourishing, they would try to replace wasteful and dirty practices in poor countries with technology from rich countries. But the green war on agriculture has little to do with pollution and and the environment. Instead, radical greens want to destroy private property, drastically increase government central planning over the economy, and de-develop Western economies to subsistence level. Green activists want to reduce agriculture just as much as they want to reduce the human population, which they see as a threat to the planet. Now, from here, the author goes into the Green New Deal, talks about to the UN Conference on Human Settlements and so forth. And there's a lot to this. But the bottom line is that if you are watching what's happening in the Netherlands, if you're watching how their farmers are being systematically shut down and regulated out of existence, Americans and people of goodwill need to take note of what's happening because the green war on agriculture is coming to a farm near you. So says James Bascom. I've got a link to the article in the show notes. I hope you'll click on it and check it out for yourself.
And, you know, I don't know what I'm suggesting is the solution other than stand up for your farmers and stand up for your ranchers. For that matter, perhaps uh, try a little bit of uh, producing your own food. This is the first year in a lot of years that uh, my wife and I have actually put in a garden. And thankfully, my in-laws had a lot of extra space, and we put in a fairly good-sized garden. Now, right now, we are swimming in zucchini and squash. I mean, it's just, they've, they've come on, and holy cow, we can't give it away fast enough. But I got to tell you, there's something kind of satisfying about being able to go out and pick a tomato right off the plant, go make a sandwich or just, you know, slice it up and eat it as such, to know that you had a hand in producing it. I don't know. Makes you feel just just that much more free than you might have felt before. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes yet, can I just uh, suggest go to thebrianhydeshow.com, click on the show notes. Down at the bottom of the page, you'll see a subscribe button. All it takes is your email address, which I will never give away, sell, or lend to anybody. It's just a chance for me to connect with you and send you my daily show notes. And there's always some good reading in those show notes. Lots of links that you can follow to become better informed on the various topics of the day. No cost to you either, by the way. I do this because I love truth. I love freedom. And I just want to spread it as far and wide as possible. But ultimately, it's up to you to do your own research, your own vetting, your own homework, and decide if it all makes sense. All right, let's uh, let's talk about the economic pain that all of us are feeling right now. I think everybody's feeling it, but not everyone understands the official origin of that pain. And by official origin, I mean the governmental origin of that pain. Got a great article here from Kent McManigal. Always, always worth reading his work. Need should be met by the people. I just love how he puts this. He says, people see me say, I don't want government doing something, and often jump to the conclusion... I don't want that thing done at all. Well, sometimes they're right, as in the case of legislation enforcement, but more often they're wrong, as in the case of environmental protection, security, or justice. His point is, government is more likely to make a mess of it. Now, he says, I love the natural environment, which is why I oppose letting government control it or set rules concerning it. He says, I've seen what happens when government is put in charge of protecting the environment. So have you. The most obvious example is the devastating wildfires that result from a century or so of wildfire prevention. Now, he says, I've also seen state-controlled forests that looked beautiful from the car, but were a barren clear-cut once you pulled over and ventured away from the road. Sure, private property owners also clear-cut, but this shows letting government protect something isn't better. How about security? It would be terrible for America to be attacked or invaded. He says, I believe in effective militia, which, by the way, is all the people, not something government runs, is the only real defense. Government's idea of national security is to wander the globe, antagonizing other governments with its military to the point they start financing attacks on American soil. By making enemies of people under those governments, you make them willing to die for a chance to strike back. I know that's not a popular sentiment, by the way, but Kent McManagle is absolutely right. That's where we get the term blowback. 
He says you don't make America safer by invading, occupying, and destroying people's homes. That's how you recruit young people to join the fight against you, against the people in America you claim to be protecting. Great for military contractors, terrible for Americans. Now, Kent McManigal says it may be even worse to let government control justice. It has gotten so bad, most people mistake punishment for justice. Those are not only not the same, but they're closer to opposites. Government's courts don't deal in justice, despite the name they give themselves. It's a rare accident if any justice comes out of a court. His point is, the market could do better. If something is needed or wanted, there is a way to get it without stealing from or taxing the population. A way to provide it voluntarily without government. Kent McManigal says, Government only needs to step in to force us to accept things we don't want badly enough to pay for them. And he says, I believe all those things should be allowed to go away. Now, typically, this will prompt somebody to respond, well, you guys are pretty naive, and uh, the only reason you can have such opinions is because government is there to make sure the sun rises on schedule every morning. But to me, that sounds a lot like uh, how we were trained to think, basically, in government-run schools from a very early age, say about age five. If there's a problem, there's somebody in authority who can solve this for us. And it's my opinion, we have been trained out of being in the habit of solving our own problems. And I'm not talking about something silly and major, you know, like world peace or world hunger. Although I think there are actions we can take at the individual level that go a long way towards solving those problems. But I'll give you the example that uh, someone gave me years ago. If you are driving down the road and you see a fire hydrant leaking water, maybe it's, you know, spraying water out there on the street, what is your reaction? Most people... I think the vast majority of people are simply going to drive by and say, oh, that's not good. Somebody needs to fix that. But by somebody, they mean somebody in authority. Now, some people may take it to the next step and say, okay, well, uh, that does need to be fixed. And so they will get on the phone and they will call somebody in authority. Hello, city uh, works, water works department. Yeah, you need to get somebody down here and fix this uh, leaky fire hydrant. But they'll want to get permission or at least acknowledgement from someone in authority before, you know, they wouldn't dare go fix it themselves. Oh, hey, I'm not a fireman. I'm not a, I'm not somebody who understands how this works. Now, contrast that with, say, a farmer who's driving by in his old pickup truck and he looks over there and he sees that fire hydrant leaking and thinks, wow, that's not good. So he pulls his truck over, pulls a wrench out of the back of his truck, walks over and shuts off the hydrant and then goes on about his business. Can you see which one of those mindsets is actually more conducive to problem solving as well as personal freedom? To me, that's just a a brilliant example of how it once was. People who would step up if they saw a problem and help to solve it. And that doesn't mean that they were going around crusading, looking for any reason. You know, you come out there and there's a farmer, you know, cranking away on your, your faucet on your house. Well, I noticed it was leaking, thought I'd just stop and help you here. It's just simply... That, that idea that you don't have to wait for permission from somebody else before you step up and do something. And I think it's the habit of, well, let's go to government. Let's go to somebody at some level of the state and see if they'll solve this problem for us. That's what's got us into the trouble that we're in right now. All right, I'm going to shift gears. There's another topic I wanted to touch on. Speaking the truth always has taken a little bit of courage, but it's, uh, it's really getting tougher today. 
Molly Kingsley has a terrific essay on the demonization of dissent and how it's being used to silence even reasonable questions. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. She says, last week, the New York Times ran an article in which it described the apparent radicalization of a group of parents from mainstream political persuasions to a single issue anti-vaccine fringe. Now, it describes how these parents seemingly came together on social media out of a concern about the damage inflicted by lengthy school closures on their children, started sharing notes and articles, many of them misleading, the article says, about school reopenings and the efficacy of vaccines and masks, fell down an online rabbit hole, again, according to the New York Times, and a year later emerged as fully-fledged members of a destabilizing new movement, anti-mask and anti-vaccine, narrowing their cause to a single-minded obsession over those issues. Yeah, that sounds like the New York Times that we all know and love. Now, Molly Kingsley says, if you read the piece at face value, you might be left with the impression that these parents are a homogenous, almost cultish group of outcasts who, having been indoctrinated, indoctrinated rather, have metamorphosed into anti-vaxxers who sought other parents online to infect with their ideology. She says it's by now a familiar narrative on both sides of the Atlantic that anyone who dares question, let alone challenge the wisdom of giving healthy children the COVID-19 jab, is labeled anti-vaccine and othered. It's a slur, she says, I know only too well, having been vocal in the UK for the last 15 months, in questioning why otherwise healthy children needed a COVID vaccine. She says, I've been labeled lazily and erroneously an anti-vaxxer and almost comically pro-death. By the way, just uh, as an aside here, do you see that Denmark just recently uh, reduced uh, or actually removed the the need for kids under 18 to get the COVID vaccine? Interesting news story, probably worth looking at to see their reasons. So skipping ahead here again for uh, Molly Kingsley's article. She talks about instead of shaming parents who take the time to study these issues out and make what they consider the best decision for themselves and for their kids, instead of shaming them, how much better would it be to greet this undeniably growing cynicism, which people are feeling towards official government health experts as well as those pushing the vaccine, to find out why are so many parents rejecting this vaccine? What are the learnings that public health needs to take from that? And more importantly... What soul-searching and messaging is needed to restore trust in public health? You know, you can't just explain it all the way. Well, it's just a bunch of fringe fanatics who just don't want to do what they're told. Maybe there's a reason they don't want to do what they're told because they don't trust the people who are telling them to do it or demanding that they do it or threatening to put them in camps or, or squeeze them out of their jobs if they don't do it. Molly Kingsley says it's dangerously naive to dismiss this spike in vaccine hesitancy as the diluted actions of an indoctrinated minority of crackpots who must be brought to their senses. Denouncing parents who raise reasonable questions and challenges about risk and benefit for their children as heretic anti-vaxxers, as the public health machine in the U.S. and U.K. has done repeatedly, is proving equally self-defeating. It's a great article. It's one I hope you'll take the time to look at. It's in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. All right, we've got to take a real quick break. We'll come back here in just a few moments. By the way, just so we're clear, I'm not telling you don't get the vax. I'm just saying you need to study it out, and it needs to be your decision. This is not something somebody else should be able to make for you. It's not their right, and it's not their realm of responsibility.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back. Just a quick word here about HSLAmmo.com. I have long been a fan of Spencer Worthington ever since the first time that he and I sat down and just visited his friends. And I'm so impressed with the ammo company that he has built. And I mean, he really has built this thing from the ground up. And it's it's an amazing company. If you knew the, the difficulties that go into procuring the proponent, the components rather, and, and everything that needs to go into keeping this company running, it, it would amaze you how hardworking this guy is. But he provides a wonderful product that's high-quality, new, and remanufactured ammunition. And he does it at a very, very fair price. Go to hslammo.com to learn more about it. You'll find a link in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. But if you have need for ammunition, show some love to HSL Ammo. Please do business with them. All right, couple articles here to kind of finish things off. Um, I'm just going to touch briefly on this one. Uh, I'm watching with great interest to see what the FBI raid of Trump's Mar-a-Lago home in Florida has set in motion. And frankly, there's some pretty intense stuff. It's like, as a, as a friend sent me yesterday, TikTok, TikTok. <laughs> I mean, there is a sense that, okay, we are seeing an escalation. And I don't even know what that escalation is moving towards or why it's being done, but we are definitely seeing some kind of escalation in terms of the people who are in power in Washington, D.C., are pushing hard. Maybe they realize that uh, they're they're facing a real shellacking coming this uh, this fall. I don't know. Maybe the midterm elections will put them in their place. Maybe they're just trying to, to get things stirred up to where somebody lashes out violently and, oh, there's our excuse to crack down. See, this is that extremism we've been talking about. But it definitely has, has raised some interesting questions. And when it comes to understanding the bigger picture on this, I find that uh, James Bovard is one of the better writers you're going to find. This guy has tons of common sense. He has years of experience working within the D.C. Beltway. And he also has a good, clear, skeptical mind that is willing to ask questions that uh, other you know, mainstream sources just won't ask. His article, FBI Trump Raid Exposes Washington Secrecy Scams, Shams rather, uh, this is worth your time. Give you a couple quick excerpts here. He says, FBI agents raided Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home Monday, reportedly looking for boxes of classified material that Trump allegedly removed from the White House when his presidency ended in January 2021. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said the raid showed the Justice Department's intolerable state of weaponized politicization. Trump is accused of violating the Presidential Records Act. Now, Congress enacted this law in 1978 after former President Richard Nixon claimed his secret Oval Office tapes and other records were his personal property. The law asserted the United States shall reserve and retain complete ownership, possession and control of presidential records. The Presidential Records Act is critical to our democracy in which the government is held accountable by the people. That's what archivist of the United States, David Ferrario, declared earlier this year. Now, Jim Bovard says, in reality, the Presidential Records Act is the Presidential Damn Near Perpetual Secrecy Act. Former presidents pocket multi-million dollar advances for their memoirs, while their records are mostly quarantined for decades from the citizens they misgoverned. 
The Nixon Library did not release the final batch of his secret tapes until 2013, 39 years after Nixon was driven from office. The Lyndon B. Johnson Library delayed releasing the final batch of his secret tapes of presidential conversations until 2016, 47 years after he left office. President George W. Bush, in 2001, issued an executive order that effectively rewrote the Presidential Records Act, converting it from a measure guaranteeing public access to one that blocks it, as law professor Jonathan Turley noted. Now, Congress overturned parts of that order in 2014. Obama White House lawyers repeatedly invoked the Presidential Records Act to delay the release of thousands of pages of records from Bill Clinton's White House, That's according to Politico. At the end of his presidency, Barack Obama trucked 30 million pages of his administration's records to Chicago, promising to digitize them and eventually put them online. That was a move, by the way, that outraged historians. Well, more than five years after Obama's presidency ended, the National Archives webpage reveals that zero pages have been digitized and disclosed. Now, people can file requests via the Freedom of Information Act, a law that Obama helped wreck, to access Obama records, but responses from presidential libraries can be delayed for years, even more than a decade, if the information is classified. Similarly, President Joe Biden double-crossed Americans on disclosing records from his 36-year Senate career. In 2018, make that in 2011, Biden donated 1,875 boxes of documents from his Senate days to the University of Delaware, which received federal subsidies to curate the collection while it was locked up. Biden and the university library promised to unseal the records two years after Biden retires from public office. Well, Biden retired as vice president in January 2017. But the library announced just before Biden launched his presidential campaign that the secrecy would continue until two years after Biden retires from public life. Now, back to the Trump raid. Jim Bovard says the FBI raid was also purportedly justified because Trump possessed classified documents. Now, classification is one of D.C.'s biggest con games. A federal commission headed by Senator Daniel Patrick Monaghan lamented in 1997, secrets in the federal government are what anyone with a stamp, or whatever anyone with a stamp, decides to stamp secret. Yet any information that's classified is treated as a political holy relic that cannot be exposed without cursing the nation. He says the federal government creates trillions of pages of new secrets every year, the vast majority of which should never have been classified. Even Biden's director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, lamented to Congress that this excessive secrecy of federal documents erodes the basic trust our citizens have in their government. Both Republicans and Democrats are to blame for the iron curtain that now shrouds dozens of federal agencies. So, did the FBI conduct a massive, heavily armed raid on a former president's home merely because of paperwork violations? Is the FBI too busy crusading against Trump's paperwork errors to drop the hammer on the cavalcade of crimes documented on Hunter Biden's laptop from hell? Unless the feds can quickly reveal proof of far more serious Trump crimes, Monday's raid was one of the most prominent outrages in recent law enforcement history. Even New York's former governor, Andrew Cuomo, warned DOJ must immediately explain the reason for its raid and it must be more than a search for inconsequential archives or it will be viewed as a political tactic and undermine any future credible investigation. Pretty solid uh, analysis there. I will have a link to that in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Okay, one final note here. 
I don't know if you've done any air travel lately, but you probably have some frustrations anytime that you do. I'm going to include an article from Patrick Carroll, who writes for the Foundation for Economic Education, about how airline regulations hurt passengers. Now, this is not just a screed against the airlines, but it's a very strong defense of the free market. Patrick Carroll says, if you've been anywhere near an airport in the last two years, you've probably gathered that things in the airline industry have changed. Delays and cancellations are causing more headaches than ever. Baggage mishandling is up. Unruly passenger cases are up. It's really a mess. Unsurprisingly, flight complaints remain significantly higher than pre-pandemic levels. And the most common complaint category is refunds. Many passengers feel that airlines have been bad about issuing refunds for missed flights. Some have been calling on the government to do something about this problem. Well, on Wednesday, the Department of Transportation responded to these calls with new proposed regulations that would create stricter rules for airplanes regarding refunds. So according to current regulations, airlines are required to give refunds if a flight is canceled or if a flight experiences a significant delay or change and the passenger chooses not to travel. However, under the current rules, the airline gets to decide what constitutes a significant delay. Unsurprisingly, passengers don't always agree with the decisions airlines make. In practice, writes Allison Sider in the Wall Street Journal, the circumstances in which airlines are required to make refunds have often been subject to interpretation. The government doesn't define significant change or delay in current rules, leaving it up to the airline to determine that. So there's no such thing as a free refund is something that Patrick Carroll points out. And he goes into much more detail here. It's worth checking out. But he says, look, consumers are the ones who are perfectly capable of regulating airlines through their purchasing decisions. In fact, they do it every day. So rather than run to the Department of Transportation, you need to help us here and tell the airlines what to do. He says the DOT may think they're helping, but they're really not. The reason being, airline passengers are far better off when they, rather than bureaucrats, decide how airlines are run. See, I think there's a lot of truth to this. And I think the mask mandates on airlines was probably a good example of this. You know, I know the federal government stepped in, the CDC, well, we have to mandate that the people should be wearing masks at all times on aircraft and so forth, trains, buses, the whole nine yards. But I promise you that if, if people were able to vote with their wallets and some airlines say, hey, we will make sure everybody's masked for every flight. Some people would say, that's the way I want to go. Others would say, I don't want to wear the mask. That's where they would take their money and their patronage. And the airlines would very quickly realize what are people willing to put up with. But instead, they hide behind the government's skirts and force everybody to do the right thing. This is The Brian Hyde Show.